This is the Image Junkies Podcast, the show for news and documentary filmmakers, with your host, Christian Parkinson. Hey guys, and welcome to the third episode of the Image Junkies Podcast. Today we're going back in time a little bit, and one of the things I want to do with this podcast is also talk about the history of the job of the TV news camera person, um, and the documentary filmmakers, you know, since since the genre began, really. And so the first person I looked to to discuss this was an old colleague of mine called Bob Prabhu, who was a BBC cameraman for 40 years um, and has some fantastic stories. And he's still uh, very much in touch with all the other veterans of the BBC. So he seemed like a great guy to start with. Um, and I wasn't disappointed. I hope you won't be either. Um, Because it was quite a long interview, I've broken this into two parts. So part one will be this week, part two will be next week. And in part one today, we're talking about how Bob got started, the sort of training he did, the early days of ENG news gathering, you know, electronic news gathering, and his time as a cameraman in the Moscow Bureau during the tumultuous late 80s and early 90s. So without further ado, let's get cracking. So Bob, thanks for joining us. Um, My pleasure. First question is, who are you and uh, what's your background? Um, I worked 40 years in the BBC. It was a wonderful career. I had my ups and downs in my job, but I had a good time on the whole. My family comes from India and I was born in Yemen. And then at the age of 22, I got a job in the BBC. I, and I joined in June the 1st, 1971 at Wood Norton, BBC Wood Norton Training School. The proviser was, is going, I have to finish a three-month course there. And if I fail the course, I will not be employed by the BBC. Oh, wow. That's a lot of so, pressure. And uh, the classroom had about 30, people, 30 boys. There were mainly boys. No, no girls at all. And... Every week, one of the faces would disappear. It just, just won't be in the class, wow. which is really off-putting, you know. And towards the third month, well, there were very few of us left, you know. And then I found out that anybody not coming up to scratch would march to the admin office and told to leave straight away. Gosh. So having passed the test, you know, it was like the Apprentice, I, like like a series of the Apprentice. Yes, yes, it was a bit scary. <laughs> so you finished then, the course, and and then you did. Did you immediately become a cameraman, or did you did you have to start somewhere else? What happened was, uh, I, the BBC decided that I should be put in news. I had no idea what the BBC was about. I didn't know where, what to go, what to do. But I had told them that I want, I would have liked to be a cameraman because my hobby was with a standard eight camera. I used to make uh, films, little films. And I used to edit in the camera because that was the cheapest option. So I used to get a roll of film, 50 feet, and I used to make little movies on that. So um, I was interested. And the tutor in Wood Norton said, um, you, you've done well. Forget about being a cameraman. You know, you've got a better future in the engineering side. So we'll make an engineer out of you. I said, but I really want to be, you know, a cameraman and take pictures. 
They said, no, they're all failed engineers, Dumbledore. You know, <laughs> He's not wrong. <laughs> well, you know, and I, I just didn't like that. But, you know, but, you know, they, they were people of power and I wasn't, you know, hmm. 22 years, 23 years old, you know. Anyway, after eight years, uh, having done night school and got my grade C, which is the engineering grade, mm. um, I got promoted to the C grade engineer. I used to work in the new studios as a vision mixer, sound mixer, and became an engineer in the studio. But I got bored. So I had been on an interview on a board for a job, and they asked me, why do you want this job? And I said, well, I don't really, but I'm so bored. I thought I'd come here for the interview, you know. Honest which is was the best obviously option. The, obviously the wrong thing to have said, because I was summoned to the engineering in charge's office straight away. And he said, why are you bored? He said, well, it's so boring what I do. So he sent me straight away in 1980 to uh, Bill Baglin, who was the head of the news camera crew his office and uh, I started an attachment um, working with Keith Skinner as a sound operator on film with yeah. using a CP16 camera, you know. Yeah. My, my cameraman was and I was doing sound with a little mixer, three-channel mixer. Um, we had a big black bag. I had to learn how to load a film onto a magazine and how to unload it can it, mm. label it. But wow. Keith Skinner, who was my cameraman, he used to drive the dope shit. So he used to write what's on the, on the, um, on the in the can. You know? Yeah. And he would give instruction um, to force it by two stops or one stop and all. Which is very, very interesting because when on the 1st of uh, November 1980, ENG came, um, well, before that, when I was in the studios, I was a union person and I was trying to get a fax unit started. But the head of engineering wanted um, the links people to do the fax links. So when you say fax, for people who don't know, essentially you mean like um, a sort of location broadcast engineering unit for news? Fax unit is the BBC TV news where the engineers set up the um, transmission link. At the moment, they use satellite. At that time, they used to have a Range Rover with a big dish on the roof, and we used to line it up with Millbank, get the signal on a circular motion way, because that could bounce off building. And we could do lives on the street, right. which was great. In 1980, it was great. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so because I was at the union meeting selling the idea of fax unit, facilities unit, in-house. So um, I started there. But there's a story before that. Um, when I joined the camera unit um, with Keith Skinner as a sound man, I was sent to Poland. And when I was there with Tim Sebastian and Keith Skinner, we heard the workmen at the Gdansk uh, shipyard were going on strike. That's the first strike in the iron, uh, across the iron, or iron country, yeah, in the Soviet Behind Union, the iron in, curtain, in yeah. 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 So um, 
the, in, Margaret Thatcher was in power and we were very interested, you know, because she was trying to put the workers uh, down in UK or mm. change their working habit. And so you got people rising up there. We got there, we got behind the gate and, you know, we covered the whole thing on film. What happened was we came the film. The problem was the film needed to get to London. So we, the producer was Philip Liddell, Kiskin and myself, the three of us, and um, Brian Walker was the correspondent. We thought about it, thought about it, whether we should send the film, and it was decided we should get it processed somewhere in Warsaw and send it because then we got control on the package because right. if the film came to London, somebody else would package it. Yeah. You know, so um, we got it. We went to Telesini in, um, in uh, Warsaw <clears throat> and transmitted the pictures and the soundtrack. When the story broke, CBS arrived the next day yeah. with their RCA camera and the original old cables and lights and everything, and they were going live. Oh, but wow. we were inside the dockyard and they were outside doing live, saying this is the Gadam's dockyard. Right. It brought so much shame to our BBC TV news management that by the time I came back in um, in in uh, October, or September, um, they, we had another meeting and they said to the unions, we have to get this ENG working straight away. We can't be the second best. Mm. So they made an agreement and we got ENG working on the 1st of uh, November 1980. Wow, it's, good. Now, it's amazing that, that you remember so specifically. Yes, uh, very interesting. But my attachment came to an end because the EIC engineer in charge of TV News said, we want you to set up and make the links working because you spend so much time at the union level meeting. Mm. So make it work. I don't want to write a report saying, sorry, this didn't work. Right. And the first ENG story we did in London was this uh, vintage car race from London to Brighton. You know, it's right. <laughs> bizarre. I mean, that time, that was a big story. You know? Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's amazing how how ENG started and the factors that came in, you know. And I worked there you know, on uh, the in the facts unit as an engineer, went to India for the cricket tour. I set it up. We did the cricket tour of the whole of India, getting live hmm. well, pictures via satellite. And we did a live um, Sportsman of the Year award for Ian Botham from Bangalore. Wow. Um, they, they didn't think this is possible because the BBC engineers at that time said, oh, Indian TV is yeah, no good. Right. <clears throat> so, but I, when I went and checked the equipment, they're all color capable, even though Indian TV was black and white. When I did my test, I found that they were color capable. Right. So I said, oh, fantastic. But the problem with Indian engineers at that time was, instead of like, for example, you line up the whole transmission chain to the set level and you look at a monitor and you set the level sound level when you are transmitting so at the end it will be perfect because you yeah. set the parameters but the engineers would instead of increasing the volume they would go and do the preset increase the preset 
which messes up the whole sound, goes into distortion and all that crap. Yeah. So I had to sit there for all the thing and tap people's hands and say, don't touch that, don't touch that, go in there and turn it up, you know. It was amazing, you know, it was a learning curve. Yeah. But it worked. The thing is, it worked, you know. And the same thing, we had a long cable on the, in the cricket ground when both of them did not know the producer arrived with bottles of champagne to give him the Sportsman of the Year award. You know, it was a long cable with Derek Collier and Ian Pritchard. He was a sound man. Oh, wow. In, um, in Bangalore for the, you know, um, Ian Botham's winning of the Sportsman of the Year award. So it was quite an event. Yeah. And I mean, for anyone who doesn't know listening to this, Ian Pritchard is still busy working now. I think he's still working with Newsnight, isn't he? Yes. He's a pretty good uh, cameraman, very mm. good operator. He's one of the finest in, in, in the BBC TV news. And yeah. a very nice guy as well. Yes, yeah. As are all the best cameramen, I I think. Uh, I think I think I don't think you get that good and to that you know have such a distinguished career without being a nice person. I don't know if you agree. I'm sure there's a few exceptions, but most mo most of the guys who have achieved the sort of things you and Ian have achieved are, are, are bloody nice guys. Yeah, I mean personalities count a lot. I mean the great thing is each one is an individual, and. Each one is a character. They have got the good side of the flip side. And um, it's the same thing. I met a lot of Reuters cameramen in my travels. Uh, they were the same. I met ZDF cameramen. They were great. I met horrible French TV cameramen who, instead of doing the job, were more interested in spoiling my shot. You know? Right, yeah. And yeah. there was an ABC Japanese sound man who felt only his cameraman would get the exclusive picture, mm. was physically attacking me. He, one of the things he I learned was from him, he would take the uh, fishbowl, you know, with the mic is, yeah. and hit me behind my knee. No way. So that when I was doing camera, I would fall down. I wouldn't oh. be able to stand up, you know. That's crazy. <clears throat> and he would just, um, you know, uh, pretend it wasn't him. It was just horrible, horrible, you know. It's totally uncalled for. Yeah, and it was in the early days of ENG and those sort of things, you know. Um, you know, in Romania, the French uh, camera crew were physically pushing me off. You know, wow. It was just um, they were nasty people. You know, mm. some of them are, but what can you do? You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you have to live with that. I mean, these are small things. The worst thing is when person comes with a gun. Mm. Then you got to, you know. Yeah. 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 It, did I ever tell you the story about Chechnya when we actually got lifted? It's probably in Angus Roxburgh's book, right? Uh, Moscow Calling, in yeah. his new book, which is released. You know, <clears throat> we were lifted in our uh, um, this one um, BBC Land Rover, which had the what do you call this uh, anti-bulletproof uh, oh, okay, covering. Yeah. Yeah. And what year was so, this? Would this have been early 90s? 94, 95, about yeah. that time. And uh, we got lifted and we were taken around a table with six, seven men with AK-47. And they asked us, why is it that uh, we have been giving coordinates to the Russian army? Because every time we went from each town or village, there was a bombardment. We said we didn't know that, you know, we didn't hear anything. Mm. Said, yes, you've been giving coordinates, you know. Said, no, we don't do that, you know. Luckily, I had learned a little bit of Russian, so I could speak a bit. And yeah. Angus was there. 
and Bob Simpson and Sam Taylor, the sound man, Sam Taylor. And we had a driver called Mahaj from our Bira. Mm. Mahaj being a Muslim, he was told he can go. Right. He's excused, he, he's released. So I s stood up and said, I'm a Muslim here. If you want to kill me, you can kill me. You know, God will be the you know, right. judge, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, he looked at me and he said, yeah. And started a few words from the Quran. And um, he looked at me and I said, well, it's up to you. you want, but I won't tell you a lie. These are not spies. I will tell you on the Quran. These are not spies. They are BBC people. Mm. And spoke in Russian. You know, and Angus also explained to them, we were putting the President Dudayev's case very forcefully on our reports. Mm. But this man wouldn't have it, you know. And he, he opened his drawer and took out all the ID cards of David Chato, who now works for Al Jazeera. Yeah. He said, we arrested these people and we confiscated his uh, papers, you know. Uh, so I said, okay, you know, I said to him, you know, <clears throat> if you think we are spies, we are not, like, you know, we are not. I kept saying it again and again and again. And finally, he accepted and he released us and gave David Chater's ID and everything to us. Right. And when we saw David Chater, because we were in a place called Khazaf Yurt, you know, in, that, in another area in, that, in, in the whole region. Yeah. And um, when we got there, uh, David was really shaken. He said he, his experience with those people threatening to kill him was really, really bad. Yeah. But we managed to get over it. And we did not lose our life. We managed to, it was pretty late. We had to stay in a dump of a place for mm -hmm. the night. And the next day morning we traveled because we decided not to travel at night because we'll be target, you know. Right, yeah. Well, it was an amazing experience, you know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so so how did you go then from from being a, an engineer, uh, you know, but then becoming a cameraman and, and covering war zones and things? How did that transition happen? Well, I mean, the thing is, uh, many people, I mean, there are, there are quite a few uh, cameramen who, who were before the dispatch riders. We used to have a cameraman who used to be a minicab driver. Oh, wow. We used to have a picture editor who used to be a bricklayer. Right. We had another picture editor uh, in film days who used to be a bartender in the bar on the fourth floor. He used to serve drinks. So it goes to show you can still acquire skill. Hmm. You know, you, 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 this is, you don't have to be typeclassed. Yeah. You can be trained, you know, and you can do a pretty good job. Yeah. And you can excel in it, you know. So <clears throat> it is not big magic, you know. There is, uh, it depends on the individual, you yeah. know. Most of them can pick up, you know. Yeah. But and what about you personally, though? So you, so you went from an engineer to a sound man and then a cameraman. When would that have been? What year did you become a cameraman? I think um, 1982. I became uh, John Jockel's sound man. It was after the Falkland War. I did. I, I was working in Uruguay. I set up the satellite station there in Uruguay because we were not allowed to transmit any pictures from Argentina. Buenos Aires, Argentina. Yeah. 
So the pictures used to be brought to Uruguay on a little one-engine plane, like in South Africa, they've got little planes. Yeah. And I to collect the tape and feed it with the earth station that was set up in uh, Montevideo. And f- did that three months till the end of the, um, the Falkland War. Then when we came back, John Jockel, who was with Bernard Haskell, he was a sound man there. He got promoted to be a cameraman. Now, one of the problems with the electronic cameras compared to a CP-16, CP-16, you, you, you should know how to thread in the proper way. Uh, so that was the old film camera. Slack. Yeah. And, you know, the early ones, you have to wind it, but the CP-16, you had a battery belt. So <clears throat> if you don't thread it properly, it'll all go wrong. Yeah. And you've got to be able to check the belt is rightly put rightly in. You know, simple maintenance you have to do. Yeah. But when HL, this uh, Ikigami HL79 came in, the cameramen were all confused with the electronic aspect because they couldn't see any film. They couldn't yeah. see where the sprocket holes were and all that. They couldn't. Yeah. And the big problem with the Ikigami uh, 79D, HL79D, was that um, the registration of three plumbicon tubes, the red, green, and blue, they used to go out of alignment. So somebody who had that camera should look at it and be able to line up the camera so you see all those three tubes converge and make a good picture. Otherwise, you get a little red or blue shadow. So <clears throat> people like me, Ian Pritchard, Neville Wong, there were quite a few who had engineering background, picked that up, and they worked with the top cameramen. So they had the backing to, you know, in case the camera goes wrong. Another thing was with the HL79 camera, if you wanted to go to NTSC, you had to change the cards from PAL to NTSC. Yeah, it was different in those days. Yeah. So that needed more alignment and checking out and things like that. So uh, uh, engineering that soundman was in great demand. So I did that, and for me, that was a skill, a natural skill uh, for me, but I did not have the skill of working on the road, which I picked up from John Jockel in those days. He was a soundman with Bernard Haskett. Bernard Haskett was one of the top cameramen in TV news. Yeah. So, you know, he, he was able to teach me how to judge situation, where to stand, how when to walk away, and who to trust, and all that things that goes with the sound, uh, with the, the with the job on the road, you know, yeah. to do the job. So that came with my training then. Then about 1989 was when um, I became a cameraman. And <clears throat> the the 1991, I got my posting in Moscow, foreign beer posting. So oh, from fantastic. 89, I, I managed to, but at that time, the new camera came, which was a, a camera recorder. So I started doing a course saying, hey, one person can use the camera, record sound, you know, but the bad thing was you can't walk backwards because you need somebody to watch your back. So I made a, a documentary film about it, and 
the BBC was very pleased and they said, oh, this is good. One person can do it. So the yeah. first one-man band was started by me. Oh, right. Wow. And the unit in our our department did not like me. There were a couple of people who came and told me in so, so many words and one of them threatened to kneecap me, you know. Oh, gosh. But, you know, that was a union group and, you yeah, know, people yeah. feared for the job and all. But came through it and nobody did anything. There was a lot of anger and, you know. Yeah. But from there, one-man band and because that started and I showed them how it can work, then I got my posting in Moscow where I worked five years, you know. Yeah. And, um, I mean, what, what, what stands out from you, uh, for you, uh, from that period? You know, what stories did you cover and what experiences, you know, still stay with you? What do you most remember, especially from your time in Moscow and so on? Well, there are a lot of stories um, that is on my mind. I mean, uh, the, the thing was, um, the, in the early days when I was doing acting cameraman, I was sent to um, Ireland, Southern Ireland. We went to a hospital. The story was the hospitals switched the babies and the parents were, one parent was happy with the baby they got. They didn't want to swap. The other parent wanted the right baby. Yeah. So we couldn't go in the hospital, but we found the address of one of the person's home. We went there, filmed through the window, and uh, cards and all that. And while we were filming, myself and Carol Walker, and uh, the man appeared. We were on his ground, and he took a dislike, and he picked the camera. He said, oh, and he's a sh short, stout Irishman, and he was really livid. And we were pulling and tugging, and at the end, you know, I said, right, this is, not, this is not the way. You can have the camera, we'll negotiate, get the camera back. Mm. He threw the camera. And then he decided it's going to be a big problem. We reported to the police. Yeah. The police managed to get the camera, but because he threw it, when I got the camera, all the three tubes were all out of function and I had to spend a day to fix it. Right. <laughs> That's one, the early days of ENG. Yeah. Then there was this thing about Romania. I mean, we got, I got to work at 7 o'clock in the morning, and we were seeing live pictures of Bucharest, you know, the people in the streets, yeah. the army shouting, TV station being taken over. So my son, man, um, Paul Francis, who was on attachment, and myself with John Simpson, and um, the producer was um, Tira Schubert, very, very nice producer, very experienced. Yeah. And we, four of us flew to Bucharest. We got there, pandemonium, everybody watching the TV, not knowing what is happening. And uh, we finally managed to, we wanted two cars because I had a lot of equipment. Uh, we, f we couldn't get two cars, but we got a, uh, a stills man with, their, um, uh, with his reporter. He didn't have a lot of luggage. So he agreed to take John Simpson and his wife. Hmm. Not wife, but his uh, producer. Who was to become his wife, right? Is that later well, on? Well, they, they were an item, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so Tira and John went in their car with their luggage. So we had all our luggage in the other Mercedes. And we drove all the way through the night, through the checkpoint. At one stage, um, Paul Francis was driving. He lost control of the Mercedes around a bed Gosh. in winter. There was ice, black ice. 
we nearly ended up in the in the river. Luckily, we hit a tree, you know, stopped. Mm. And then we had to stop a truck, or Tira had to stop a truck and get it pulled up. When we pulled out, Tira gave a lot of money and cigarettes to the driver, and we carried on driving, you know. We got to Bucharest, and it was daylight, and there was all this sniping, shooting going on. It was amazing. And at that time, there was no courses. We didn't do any courses and all that. It was just common sense. Yeah, so there was there no was hostile shooting. environment training in those days. No, we didn't have helmet, no, uh, flag jacket, nothing. But one of the problems was the glass on the buildings used to just fall down. So we had to look up. And I just say, well, keep away. You know, we go in there, take cover, run, run out in the open. Yeah. Ducking and diving, and there were people on the lookout for security, and they were lynching people, you know. Gosh. And there was a lot of confusion, a lot of shouting, a lot of, you know, um, problems with language and so on. But we managed to capture the essence of it, and we got the one speech to come out of John Simpson, which has been used a lot. He's standing in front of a tree, but you don't see any tanks or anything, but you can hear the sound, which was mixed by Paul Francis, very good. Yeah. He got the effects of the bang-bang with John speaking straight to the audience Christmas Day in, I think it was 1989. Hmm. Uh, and um, he said the tanks are over there, they're shooting over here and all that. And it made the bulletin, you know, it was yeah. very, very good. So to do that, you know, break down a country collapsing right in front of my eyes was just unbelievable. That was the first one. Yeah. Then when in Soviet Union, 1991, December, 25th of December, we were in Ben Brown's flat having Christmas meal, his, which his wife made, a lovely treat for all of us. Yeah. We were enjoying it, and then we get a phone call saying, Gorbachev is going to be talking on the TV and he's going to uh, close down Soviet Union. There will be no more Soviet Union. Wow. So he had, Your heart must have been pumping. The adrenaline must well, have been going. He had quite a few drinks being Christmas Day. You know? Yeah, yeah. The, uh, ben Brown's hospitality was really good, you know. <laughs> but so um, Geraldine Brown, Ben's wife, made a lot of coffee for us, which we poured down, got in the car, Duncan Knowles went to the bureau with Ben Brown. I went with Kate uh, White to uh, the Red Square to see the flag coming down. Because the only way you can show collapse of the Soviet Union is the Soviet flag coming down. How do you otherwise show? I mean, of course, we've got the pictures of the president saying there's going to be no more Soviet Union, you know. But, yeah. you know, it's very difficult. If you can imagine, how do you show it in pictures, collapse yeah. of the country, you know. And yeah. then the aftermath after the collapse was a running story of how people got on the street and pulling down statues and they're gonna say one statue of Lenin is enough, one statue of the KGB man is enough. Don't, this is our heritage, don't destroy the city, which is very good, you know. Yeah. So we, we covered all that, that was amazing. There are lots of stories like that. I mean, Chechnya, loads, loads of stories, you know. Budunos, did you watch Simon Reeves' program about Russia? No, I didn't see it. Yes, he was very good. And he, he actually goes to Budunovsk. There's a memorial. But I have got pictures of that, you know. And that was amazing, you know. 
uh, the shooting and all that in Budanovsk, you know. Yeah. And that was just me, one cameraman. I had no producer, nobody to watch my back, just working on my own. But my pictures didn't make it to London for some reason. Yeah. The pictures were sent to the producer, Duncan Knowles edited it, then given to the producer to transmit it back to London, and it did not work. So I could not even put in for the RTS Award oh, because it has to be transmitted. Right. Yeah. Right. So I was, you know, really choked about that, you know. So what was that, the gun battle around the parliament? Is that the one you're talking about or is this a different location? Budinovsk was a hospital, a big hospital, which the Chechens had taken over. They actually gone oh, in and fired. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. You know. There was another one similar to that at Pyramaiskaya, which is in a... In, in a another part of the Soviet Union. And uh, there also the people, they didn't take a hospital, they were uh, a rebel who was just shooting recklessly and taking hostages. They took a farm and all that, you know. Mm. And we we wanted uh, to get an elevation. So um, I got on top of a bale of straw with a big ladder, got on top, put my tripod up there, and could use my zoom lens to see what the hell was going on where they were. Right. That's the only way we could do it, you know. Yeah, wow. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, of course, health and safety, you know, if that thing catches fire and all. Yeah, true. Oh, you know, <laughs> I know. Or there is a shootout that comes to us, you know. Yeah. And, you know, even there where we were in Pierre, my sky, we were sleeping all in one room mm. on the floor. And one night, a man walks in and he nicks... Uh, this other cameraman called uh, Zura, his camera. He nicks the camera. Oh, wow, wow. While you were all sleeping? We were all sleeping, snoring our head off. But he picks the camera and walks off. And um, we were utterly shocked that nobody heard. And this man just came in and took it, you know. Yeah. But the police then finally found him and we got the camera back, you know. Oh, wow. Well, My camera wasn't touched, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, guys, so we're going to pause Bob right there. Bob, thank you very much. And we're going to pick up with Bob next week in part two of this interview, which will be the fourth installment of the Image Junkies podcast. Next week, he's going to talk about life after Moscow, working with John Simpson and helping come up with the format for a show called Simpson's World. And rather hilariously, he talks about the time he interviewed... Um, Colonel Gaddafi, who didn't stop farting throughout the whole interview, um, as well as the time he got bitten on the bum by a human being while filming. So, great stories to come next week. Tune in and I'll speak to you then. Oh, and please do subscribe and leave a comment if you can. All right, thanks guys. Take care. Bye-bye.